Our purpose this morning is to understand God's personal will for us. Uh, ever want to know God's will for your life? What's God, God got planned for you? Uh, what does he want from you? Uh, most often when people ask questions about the will of God for my life, usually it's got to do with uh, specific life decisions that are going on at the moment. Uh, should I live in Ingleburn or should I downgrade and say move to, I don't know, slum it in St Ives? Uh, <laughs> uh, should I quit my job and take this other one? Uh, or, or maybe I should uh, quit all good jobs altogether and go be a missionary or something. Uh, should I marry Miss A or Miss B? Uh, presuming that either of those lovely ladies should have mercy on me. <laughs> I think when people ask about the will of God for their lives, oh, the matter she had mercy. <laughs> She's Miss A too. <laughs> And she was Miss B because she was Alison Baxter. But anyway, that's uh, <laughs> just occurred to me. Uh, many times Christians can become paralysed by fear and indecision, worrying that they might be making the wrong choice or maybe they might be getting God's uh, second best for their life or maybe they're, they're going to be stepping outside of God's will for them somehow. Uh, but as we come to this uh, second half of the letter, uh, chapters 4 and 5 of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, Paul tells us exactly what God's will is for us. In fact, twice in these two chapters, once in this section and once next week, we hear this statement, this is God's will for you. Do you want to know what God's will is for you? Are you ready for it? It's in verse 3 here. It's, in, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. That's what it is. Uh, now, being sanctified might sound like a bizarre and ominous thing. It's a strange religious word, uh, but all it's really describing is, is making progress in your purity and your walk with God. That's what sanctification is, having your character grow more and more to be like his character and your life changing to be ever more pleasing to him. Or to use another Bible term, uh, it's all about growing in holiness. Now today we're looking at verses 1 to 12 of chapter 4, which deal with three specific areas of life that I'm sure you'll agree all need uh, constant attention and which make the news all the time, as we've seen this week, uh, holiness in terms of sexual purity, holiness in terms of loving fellow Christians, and holiness in terms of living a quiet and productive life. And you might think, well, actually, I'm a bit past all that. Uh, that's not really for me. Those other people, maybe they need to hear it, but not me. Um, uh, let me assure you, you do need to hear it. Uh, one, because uh, it's good for the body to hear these things together, even if some are struggling with certain areas. And so it's good for us to be united in that and know what God's will is. Uh, second, uh, we've got to model to the other generations. And so we've got to know what, what is it that God wants and God thinks is appropriate if we're going to teach our kids and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. And third, you never know when these things are going to hit you. As John Mason, who is 82... Ask me to tell you at this service, old lusty never grows rusty. <laughs> he said he knew that from personal experience. So there you go. So the truth is all of us need to work on all of these different things. And anyone who thinks they've got them fully sorted out is not particularly wise. We live in a very dangerous world and the biggest dangers out there aren't other people but are the ones that grow in our own hearts, uh, which are so easily led astray, aren't they? We're so easily blinded by our sin and excuse what we do. 
Now, maybe you're sitting there with the sneaking suspicion as well that this might all sound like a recipe for a dull and boring life if we were to follow God's ways in this. Maybe you hear of holiness and sanctification and your mind goes to the stained glass windows and, you know, strange old men with beards and dinner plates behind their heads who look like they've uh, got, you know, uh, puckered faces from being force-fed Brussels sprouts and laxatives. Uh, and they've got their long bushy beards. They look like ancient professors who've crawled out of some musty old library and they never look like they've had a day of fun in their whole life. Is that what it means to be holy? Is that what it means to be sanctified? Well, if you thought that's what it was, then uh, let me assure you, you've been very wrong because the truth is that it's sin that robs us of life and joy. Bible holiness is nothing less than going to be more like God himself and no one is more full of life and joy than God. But that doesn't mean that growing in holiness is going to be easy or painless and there may well be things raised this morning and next week that are going to bring up past hurts for you because some of you are hurting in this area. Uh, They may bring up things which um, might have to cause you to do some serious business with God now on current issues. Uh, But God doesn't give us his word to hurt us. He gives it to help us. So let's get into it. The whole section's headed up by verses 1 and 2, which really summarise the big overarching principle which is going to govern everything else that Paul's going to say in this letter. You see there, verses 1 and 2, he says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you on how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. I just want to point out four things like, Uh, from those couple of verses. Notice four things. First, Paul's only reminding them of things he's already taught them. It's not new stuff that he snuck up on them uh, and surprising with as if it all should come as a shock. Uh, You know, I told you the gospel, you could get to heaven. But now let me tell you the other stuff. (laughs) Uh, And if this stuff comes as a surprise to you, I'm sorry for that. Uh, It shouldn't be. This is is general Christian teaching. Uh, And and we all need reminding and encouragement because it's important stuff which is constantly challenged and questioned by our world, by our sinful hearts and by Satan himself. Second thing, notice Paul's tone. It's affectionate and it's urgent. He's not like my old mass lecturers who couldn't care less if anyone was listening. Here's the course notes, young people. Do with them as you wish. It's all business, not mine. (laughs) Paul's not like that. He loves these people and he's urging them here to live a wonderful life of godliness. We ask you and we urge you, he says. And he says to do it more and more. Growing in holiness, sanctification is always a more and more thing. It's something we keep growing in. That's the third thing to notice. He says the same thing in verse 1 and he says it in verse 10 as well. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. The point is that growing in holiness is an urgent, ongoing business. It's not something that we can learn once and then be done with it. It's not like being a kid and learning that the square root of nine is... Sorry, someone at eight o'clock said 81. Uh, <laughs> I said that's the square, not... Anyway, yeah, yeah. But the square root of nine is also minus three. Because minus three times minus three makes a positive. But anyway, so, yeah, yeah, but some things you learn... At school, just little bits of information, they, they stick in there and they, you just remember them. Just little facts. I learned the other day that the Latin classification of the little bird, the wren, is troglodytes. There you go. 
A wren is a troglodyte, which is really disappointing if you're a D&D player. Because, you know, oh, I was attacked by a troglodyte. <laughs> or it means that wrens are really, really scary. <laughs> anyway, uh, but it's far easier to remember that a wren is a troglodyte than it is to abstain lifelong from all sexual immorality and to constantly and persistently love our fellow Christians and to work hard at not being a gossip or slacker. This stuff takes real effort to master and we're going to be working on it all of our life. Notice four thing from verse 1. Then we're not talking here about an impersonal code of conduct. This isn't the engineering ethical kind of thing I had to read and sign you know, donkeys years ago. This is a matter of pleasing God. And that's the real heart of the matter here. Pleasing God. That's what life now as a Christian is really all to be about. We've been called through Jesus. We've been brought into a relationship with the creator of the universe who loves us, who's paid very dearly for us to be adopted into his family. Uh, and, and now it should be our sole aim in life to please him. And so it all flows from a changed heart. That's what this stuff is about. This is about the changed heart that wants to please God that's going to result in a whole new life. So let's get down to brass tacks. What does life that's growing more and more in the joy of living to please God look like? Well, it's spelled out for us in verses 3 to 12 today in three issues. The first one, I know you've been waiting for it, sex. Uh, God's will is that we'll be increasingly sanctified in our sex lives. You see there in verse 3, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses there for sexual immorality is the word porneia. Uh, that might sound familiar because we get the English word pornography from it. But the Greek word refers to pretty much any kind of sexual relationship or activity which takes place outside of heterosexual marriage. So it includes adultery. It includes premarital sex. It includes uh, same-sex relationships and uh, homosexual practice. It includes bestiality. It includes polyamory. It includes pedophilia. It includes going to prostitutes. It includes watching porn and includes a whole lot more than that as well. Now you might wonder, why does this topic seem to come up so many times and so early in all the kinds of lists of sin? Why why has kind of God got a thing about it? Why is it so strong in the Bible? Why does God care what we do with our bodies and what we do with our bits? And the answer is twofold. Firstly, he cares because sexual immorality is such a universal thing. This is something that affects every person, every culture, every society. Sexual freedom wasn't invented in the 1960s. And it's not something that stops because you turn 22, as John Mason reminds us. And Roman culture, was dominate, which dominated the New Testament world, was extremely permissive. In fact, it was very much like our own. We're getting closer and closer to Bible times than, than further. So it was expected that you would take multiple lovers, which is normal, that you'd have mistresses, that you'd see prostitutes and you would do what you want. And so the Christians in Thessalonica had to learn and be reminded just like us, because it was in their face all the time around them. But second, and the far more important reason that God cares so much, is because he knows just how big a part 
human sexuality plays in human life, how, how close to us it is and how deeply affecting of our lives and, and our personality it is, uh, both how wonderful uh, and wonderful and, and important it is when it's done right, but also how damaging it is when sexuality is misdirected, misused and perverted. Sex is a great thing. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, God came up with the idea and he put it into our systems. Now, he didn't have to make us like this, did he, with those kind of desires? I mean, human reproduction could have taken place in any different way that God could have come up. He could have made it so that, you know, you want to have a baby. What you do is you clip one of your toenails and you put it in a plant pot with some compost and you water it with sea salt and bam, nine months later, there's a baby. That's <laughs> he could have done that, couldn't he? But he came up with a much more enjoyable way of doing it. <laughs> he didn't make us that way. He gave us sex, which is meant to be an enjoyable and stimulating and bonding thing. See, in God's amazing design, and you learn this from Genesis 2, uh, sex acts like a superglue which bonds two people together physically. It's the physical expression of the bond of marriage that God created in the garden. One man, one woman coming together with promises of love and faithfulness to build each other up and care for each other right throughout life till death do us part. It's his good gift and it does it really well. And we know that everything that's created by God is intrinsically good. It's only our warped minds which twist and distort and turn things to evil. And it's that twisting and distorting and turning to evil which has been going on since Adam which we're seeing all around us, all the time. We're seeing it in the breakdown of marriages and families, uh, in the, the, the sleeping around. Uh, we see it in the Mardi Gras. We see it in the eroticising of TV and advertising so that you can't even have yoghurt advertised without it being sexual. Yoghurt! You know? um, we see it in the education system where our children are being taught what our society now assumes, that sexual activity is everybody's undisputed right and that life without sex is simply not worth living. There's only one taboo, only one thing that under no circumstances can be said in sex education in the secular schools. That is that the possibility that abstinence might be the right thing. That, they can't say that. Alas to a society, though, that teaches its children to embrace disorder and unhappiness, and turn their backs on the path to joy. Because it's also counter to our well-being as human beings. Some of us know that from bitter experience, just how damaging sex misuse can be. I look around the room and I can see some here who have been uh, seriously, deeply hurt by the actions of others, some have been assaulted and abused. Some of you bear the scars of broken relationships which you thought meant more at the time, at least they did to you. Some of you have been betrayed. Some of you have even been the betrayer. And you know just how deep and long-lasting the effects are. We're talking about stuff that can seriously damage you for the rest of your life, in some cases. And the statistics keep showing the same things. 
uh, couples that sleep together before marriage are far more likely to bust up later. It's about double the rate of breakup if you slept together before you got married, um, if I remember that correctly. It's double again if you shack up together as well. Four times higher likely to break up. Uh, also, the chances double of domestic violence if you cohabit before marriage and all kinds of other domestic abuse, the chances go up in cohabitation before marriage. And yet that is not only tolerated in our community, it's encouraged. Uh, we're talking about untold damage that people are doing to themselves and to each other. And that's before we even get to considering what pleases God, which, which should be our primary concern. What, what honours you, God? What can I do with my body to please you? And yet, how wonderful is it that in this area of life, as in every area of life, what glorifies God and what pleases him is exactly the most beneficial thing for ourselves. Paul's teaching here is non-negotiable. And so the question comes, how do we obey that? How do we avoid sexual immorality, or more positive, how do we be sexually pure in a way that honours God? How, in the words of verse 4, does each of us learn to control our own body in a way that's holy and honourable and not in passionate lust like the non-Christian world? Well, I think the first thing to do is notice that there are three different reasons given to do things God's way. Because if there's not a good reason to change, then people just don't change, do they? Uh, I did a change management course last year and they suggested that you know there's, there's always pain in change and so you've got to convince people that the pain of not changing is worse than the pain of changing and that's when they'll change. What are the three reasons given to do things God's way? Well, first reason Paul gives is that it's just part and parcel of knowing God. He says the heathens, that is the non-Christians, they don't know God. And that's why they do what they want with their bodies in passionate lust. Because they don't know him. But the converse is also true, that when you come to know God, you come to appreciate that our own lives are intended to be lived with joyful self-discipline and with a purpose. We've got this new purpose given to us because we know God. And the new purpose is pleasing him, serving him. There's a point now to what we do and to what we don't do. And so if we don't control our sexual thoughts and behaviour, we're actually scorning the loving friendship of God. We're saying to God, I don't want to know you. I don't want to know your ways. Your friendship, your love, your approval mean less to me than my sexual self-gratification. So I choose sexual immorality and I reject my friendship with you. So that's the first reason. Because we know God. The second reason for change, he says, when we engage in sexual immorality of any sort, we're always hurting someone else. And so it's profoundly unloving. Verse 6, he goes on. In this matter of sexual immorality, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. When you muck around with sexual immorality, you always hurt someone. You always hurt someone, not just yourself. Whether it's the jilted spouse in the case of adultery or the emotional scars you leave on the other person after a one-night stand, whether it's the drug dependence and sex trafficking trade that you support by pornography or whether it's the future husband or wife of the other person 
that you are stealing something from. You always hurt someone. One of the lies of the modern world is that casual sex doesn't harm anyone. It's a downright utter lie. You always hurt someone. So don't do it. But the third and most compelling reason for change is in verse 6. You see it there? The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we've already told you and warned you about. And if the other two reasons didn't give you enough pause, this one should. God will not overlook such behaviour. He'll call it to account and there will be consequences and maybe even dire consequences. There's consequences in this life. I mean, we know that there's STDs and other things. But you think of the life of King David. The bitter consequences of his adultery with Bathsheba were played out in his family for decades, even centuries afterwards. One stupid act devastated his family and got Uriah killed. Um, even though he came to repentance and he found forgiveness with God, you know, the death of his child, uh, the rebellion of his son Absalom involving civil war and much bloodshed, the jealousy and strife within his own family, the contestation of the throne, they were all direct consequences of David's behaviour uh, to Samuel explicitly points out. But there's the far more dire consequences of continually flying in the face of God and his ways. But he says we'll end up facing his judgment and we'll wind up in hell. Because you cannot live as a Christian and expect to be uh, welcomed into God's home if you continue to defy God and spit in his face and treat his ways with contempt. Just like Jesus warned in Matthew 7. You know, not everyone who says to be Lord, Lord, who did miracles and did amazing things in God's name is going to be welcomed in. He'll say, no way, I never knew you. Because... A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Now, some of you might react to that and think, well, hang on a minute. That doesn't sound like the gospel. Aren't we saved by grace and not by works? This is true for other areas of life other than just sexuality, but but aren't we saved by grace and not by works? Hasn't Jesus' death covered me and paid for my sins, sins past, sins present, sins future? Well, of course it has. Jesus, Jesus has paid for our sins. That's, that's how we get the grace of God. And we're only saved by God's kindness and love and we only stand by God's kindness and love. But if you think that the cross is a license to do what you want, then you haven't understood the cross. You haven't understood grace at all. And worse, you haven't received it either. See, God's grace is not a mechanical thing. It's not a mathematical formula. There is this much grace and if you tick a box it's transferred to your account. Grace is about relationship, not about mathematics. Jesus died for us, not so we could go on sinning, but because that's what we were doing. He died so that we could come to live a life of faith and joy and obedience that starts now and flows on into eternity. See, when you continually spite God, you're showing you're not his. When you're adopted into a new family, if you go and you know, um, 
ignore everything that the new parents say. You punch them and you fight with the other kids and you spit on the face. You're not going to last long in that home. You show you're not his. See, grace may be free, but it's not cheap. And that might sound like a contradiction because free sounds very cheap. Grace may be free, and it is free. Anyone can have it. It's a gift, but it's not cheap. You can't just go, well, so what? I'll do what I want now. Thank you. (laughs) Avoid sexual immorality. Honour God with your body. So how do we go about obeying that? Because we're all tempted in different times and in different ways. Uh, Some of us are tempted at home on the internet. Some of us are tempted in the office. Some of us are just tempted in our minds. Uh, It can take place there. How do we deal with it? Well, it's got to start by prayer, doesn't it? If pleasing God is the great incentive and motivation. So we're going to pray, Lord, please give me strength not to turn on that TV show because I want to please you. Give me strength, God, not to go to the computer and look at those images because I want to please you. Give me strength, Lord, to avoid this relationship that I've been pulled into because I want to please you. Teach me to love the things you love. Teach me to hate the things that you hate. But like all things, you don't just pray and do nothing. You've got to act. You've got, you've got to put good habits in place. You've got to put boundaries in place. You've got to put accountability software in place. You might need to go and get help from a Christian mentor or a friend or a pastor. But sometimes we have got to take more drastic action than that. If you're working in an office with lots of people and there's someone there who is an unbearable source of temptation and uh, reports are suggesting that uh, 25% of office workers in Sydney have had an affair in the office with someone at their work. If there's someone in your office who is an unbearable source of temptation, walk out of the job. Get a transfer. It's better to be unemployed than to fall into sexual immorality. If the TV or the computer becomes an unbearable source of temptation, unplug it, take it outside, open the wheelie bin and chuck it in. You will not die. You can face life without it. I know that theoretically because it's worked for thousands and thousands of years until the 1950s when TV came in. (laughs) If the smartphone is an issue, chuck it out. Get a dumb phone. One that can actually be used for what it was designed for in the first place, calling people. (laughs) It is God's will that you be sanctified in all things. And in this area here, that you avoid sexual immorality. That's the first issue. Well, that's enough of that. The second issue is the importance of brotherly love in verses 9 and 10. That is that the love Christians should share with each other and show to each other. Because to become a Christian is to join a universal brotherhood and sisterhood of the Christian church. Uh, God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. uh, And he's also the Father of all those who belong to Jesus Christ by adoption. And just like the family we were born into the first time, you don't get to choose your relatives. 
Only God gets to do that. Now, in the case of the Thessalonians, uh, Paul tells them in verse 9 very affectionately that they don't need him to tell them very much more because they already love each other so very deeply. In fact, we saw in chapter 1, they become world-renowned for their love for each other and their love for other Christians in other cities and towns and around the place. You remember that in chapter 1? But, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, right, right, Thessalonians, I can reward you the gold diploma of brotherly love, top of the class for 50 AD, you can all switch off down, do what you want. <laughs> no, he says, don't stop. In fact, he says, verse 10, we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. And like them, it's easy to see why we need this reminder to love other believers more and more. And if you have any doubt that we need this reminder, I can prove that you're wrong. Let me ask you a simple question. Have you ever met an imperfect Christian? Is there anybody, even in this church perhaps, that you find irritating? or rude, or unfeeling? Is there someone here perhaps, or elsewhere, that's let you down? It's laughable, isn't it? If we were all perfect, adorable, darling angels, it would be easy to love each other, easy as drawing breath. As one Englishman I heard once put it, much of the time we are more angles than angels. Uh, we're sharp-edged, we're bristling little echidnas, we, uh, which is why we need this urgent reminder to love each other more and more. So how are you going with it? Uh, is there someone, let's give some examples, is there someone perhaps in this very room today that you haven't spoken to for a long time because of a sharp little angle that came between you over something? Well, why not speak to that person over morning tea today and at least... At the very least, open the door to a possibility of reconnecting in friendship with them in the future. Maybe you need to make an apology yourself. Or think of of people that we haven't seen in a little while. Might there be some brother or sister in Christ who's perhaps dropped off because of circumstances and we've not been aware of it, what's going on, and you haven't caught up with because, well, uh, there's lots of other things that have crept in or maybe you've just been lazy um, why not this week make a phone call or even pay them a visit? Or is there some responsibility in the church that needs you to shoulder it? Might it be really loving to the church for you to take that on rather than turning a blind eye to it? And I just got a text five minutes ago from someone saying, we've run out of cleaners for the church. <laughs> um Love is always a practical thing, isn't it? And it's amazing how much joy there can be when we love like this, when there's warmth and affection of the concern that that we can really show to each other. So love one another. Now, third and final issue today, growing in holiness is shown also in a quiet and hard-working life. And that's there in verse 11 and 12. He says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work hard with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you'll not be dependent on anybody. I mean, you can picture the kind of life that he's talking about. I mean, you can think of someone who's a good model of that. Um, it's a picture of a well-ordered life. 
Uh, it's the opposite of the present-day attitude of live hard, die young kind of attitude where, where you need to experience everything there is to experience and, and be up on all the goss and where your job and your household chores are just things that get in the way of the real fun. Yeah? Um, and like all the other things in this list and the stuff in Chapter 5 yet to come, this is challenging and it requires self-control and self-discipline, which don't come naturally. I mean, no one as a kid wakes up and thinks, I should clean my room today. That would be lovely and kind to everyone. <laughs> Do they? And these things are challenging all the way through life. Uh, you know, I still haven't learned to make the bed. But anyway, that's <laughs> leading a quiet life. I think that's a particular challenge for me. My tendency is to try and cram as much noise and people and things and adventure into every waking moment so that Alison can tell you I'm sitting there with the phone going, the laptop going, with a TV program on at midnight at night trying to do it all at once and concentrate and because and, I can't bear to miss the show but what about the email and you know, kind of thing and this game needs playing. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm falling asleep, and I can't, you know, I really shouldn't be doing any of it at that time. Um, it's really hard. I need self-control. Minding your own business, that, that is to stop trying to meddle and control and know everybody else's business. It's the opposite of being constantly on Facebook. Working hard with your hands. Now, that's not just about getting a job to earn a crust. I mean, uh, I mean there's people who need challenging that way. But you can be unemployed or retired and still obey this. It's not a sin to be unemployed. All sorts of people find it difficult to find work these days for various reasons. But even the unemployed, you can be a willing worker so as not to be a burden by doing the housework, by being a volunteer with you know, Sally's or church, God forbid, yeah? <laughs> uh, by making a contribution you make yourself useful because the whole thing is really about dependability, reliability and being a giver rather than a taker. It's about the well-ordered life that's a blessing to others. And just notice there in verse 12, by the by, that, that if we live like this, he says it's going to be an incredible testimony to our friends and neighbours and family and community of just what a difference being a Christian makes. And it'll only help them in coming to know the wonder and joy of knowing Jesus Christ as their Saviour and Lord too. So what's God's will for your life? What's God's will for you? It's not locked into particular specific choices really in the end. It's really tied up with character and motivation which will then affect all those choices. God's will for you and for me, is that we be sanctified. That we please him in everything. That in our every concern, in our every decision, with our every breath, we might love him and live for him, for our good and for his glory. In every aspect of our lives. I mean, that's a pretty big chunk of our lives, isn't it? Our sex lives, our church life, and our work-life balance. <laughs> that's in every aspect and it's something he calls on us to grow in more and more each day. This is God's will for you. This is God's will for me. And think how good life would be if it were like this. 
Think of the incalculable blessing we would be to our families and our friends and our community around and, and even to ourselves uh, if we were more like this more and more and more. The shining loveliness and integrity of lives of sexual purity. The joy and delight within the fellowship of love and the attractiveness of lives of productivity and service. Giving, not taking. It's such a wonderful prospect. Is it even possible for sinners like you and me to live this out? Well, by the grace of God it is. But it's something we grow into. It's a more and more thing. And so let's help each other and encourage each other and keep reminding each other, just like God has to keep reminding us to live like this. Let me pray. Father, these are challenging words. It's a challenge for all of us to be thinking about what we do in every aspect of our lives, to ask the question, is it pleasing to you? But Father, there's some of us for whom these specific issues are particular challenges. Some that it raises lots of hurt from the past, of the damage done, and it makes us uncomfortable to think about it. Father, please have mercy. Please grant healing. Please help them to forgive as they've been forgiven. For those who are currently engaged in uh, sexual immorality now, Father, please have mercy on them and give them the courage and the conviction to do something about it and to take action, to flee. Father, we pray that all of us might live honourably and honour you with our bodies, whatever our struggle is. Father, we pray for our church to grow more and more, to be a community of love and concern where we've got each other's backs and we support one another in joy and friendship and care. We thank you that uh, Steve and Nikki and Haley here this morning. And please help us to care and love for them, but also for each other in all of life's circumstances. Father, we pray that you might help each of us to be disciplined in our lives, in our home life and work life, not to just please ourselves, but to be givers rather than takers, to be providers rather than users. We pray all this in Jesus' name for your glory and for our joy. Amen.